Hello and welcome to Over the Counter, a podcast from HBW Insight. I'm Editor-in-Chief Ryan Nelson. On Over the Counter, we speak with industry experts and insiders about the biggest news, trends, and issues facing the cosmetics, OTC drug, and dietary supplement sectors. The topic of discussion today is a draft regulation making its way through the EU process that would create new hazard classes under the classification, labeling, and packaging, and reach regulations, including for endocrine-disrupting substances. More broadly, we'll be talking about the CLP, REACH, cosmetic products regulation, and their interrelationships. I'm joined today by Louise Witter, the Director and Principal Consultant at Chemical Legislation Professionals Limited, based in the UK. She's also the founder of the CLP Hub, a chemical regulatory e-learning platform where she offers training in a range of topics. These include classification of substances and mixtures, labeling and packaging, and safety data sheet production and use. Louise has been working as a consultant in the field of general quality, health, safety, and environment for over 20 years, specializing in chemical classification and communication. Louise, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. To start out, Louise, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, as I'm not sure I did did your uh, your bio justice. Was, was that all right, <laughs> or what did I leave out? For example, um, I did see that... Uh, <laughs> You know that that you have a broad client base these days um, that also you know runs the gamut, includes even vaping and and canine skincare was intriguing, but that that could probably be a probably be an episode all to itself. But many of us. <laughs> yeah, well, my background um, educationally, my first degree was marine and environmental biology. Um, and I went back to university um, decades later to do my law degree. So I had been working in compliance for a long time, but decided that I wanted to really sharpen up my skills. Um, and in the way I wanted to give advice and the way I wanted to process what was happening around us. And I think that really gave me um, a much better edge in terms of actually understanding what was happening and and processing it in an effective way and then talking to clients in a more pragmatic style about what needed to be done. So the combination of the two degrees has actually been really useful over time, um, particularly because the system has been developing in the areas of environmental types of, of hazards. And really, that's going to be a lot of what we talk about today. So it's it's really given me a good underpinning in terms of that and I'm, I'm really grateful for having done that and had that opportunity. Um, I sometimes wonder whether I'm more of a biologist than a lawyer or a lawyer than a biologist and I think I do probably fall into the camp of compliance um, more so I probably slant a little bit more towards the legal side of that but yeah it's it's been a really interesting um, academic pursuit in that sense but I love the practical parts of our job and we do have a wide range of clients, some of whom do normal things and some of whom do some slightly strange things. But that just makes it all really very interesting um, for us. And, and for me, it's looking at, OK, what's a pure legal position? You know, so if you were stuck in court, what's the worst? But then really looking at it and stepping back and being really pragmatic. But OK, how can we best practically manage this without you know, panicking too much and, and trying to instill some calm? Um, in what's been a really fast moving regulatory field um, the last couple of years have been I think have been really destabilizing for a lot of people particularly with the Brexit element which we probably not talk about much today we'll probably stay on the the pure EU side of things but it has been a really unstable environment for a lot of companies to be in and it's been a very difficult time um, with a lot of moving targets and deadlines that are all interrelated. So being able to unpick those and come out, you know, come up with plans for our clients has been really satisfying and intellectually challenging as well. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like your clients are lucky to have you and we're thankful to have you with us today. Um, as you yeah. say, the, the, the volatile sort of environment in Europe, um, we've been covering, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, changes happening under the the green deal and all of its many various instruments uh and and regulations and so specifically the the chemical strategy for sustainability uh has been a big one and that's sort of um triggered a number of changes but as you say a lot of these regulations are are interconnected um and sort of a, a change in one place will often sort of trip uh you know changes that happen elsewhere so Um, We're going to be speaking about specific changes on on the way under the CLP, but first I thought we'd start fairly broadly, uh, if we could, with an overview of the major regulations at issue. So, do you want to begin 
Louise, and, and just talk a bit about historically what the, the EU CLP regulation has required of companies generally. Whom does it serve? And how has uh, your consultancy, Chemical Legislation Professionals, been involved in supporting companies' compliance work? Yeah, okay, let's have a, a chat about the, the historical piece there. So um, the original sort of EU position was really directive-led. So the EU directives were very um, focused on directing the, the different member states and countries within the EU and European economic area widely. Um, to, they were directing you to achieve a particular outcome, but they weren't necessarily as focused on the steps. You know, you were kind of left um broadly to to work out some of the details of how that might be done and that kind of created a really difficult environment um and one of the underpinning pillars of eu law and how the eu is set up is that you're not really allowed to hamper people's competitiveness within the marketplace by localized uh different regulations so it's all about you know making sure that there's a smooth regulatory process across the whole area so you know when you were getting countries implementing things in slightly different ways and taking different standards to enforcement it was really causing some barriers to trade which is just you know a complete no in terms of how the eu set up and i think at the same time all that was happening we were having a real uh, growth and expansion in real global trade and so you were not only having a problem within the EU in terms of how they were trading with each other but how the world was trading with each other and there was this lack of a common language in terms of what the chemical classifications looked like what what we meant when we said something you know if I said flammable what do what do I mean by that if I say something's toxic if swallowed what do I mean by that and does it mean the same thing to someone else you know so we also had this sort of global backdrop where we had um differences in terms of the, the systems in place and and it gave a competitive edge again to countries who were willing to be much more flexible about how they they classified products how they labeled them you know so there was a there was a broader problem in terms of the balance of safety versus um the market and competitiveness and so really this is where the GHS or globally harmonized system came about, sometimes known as a purple book, and not to be uh, confused with any US naming of systems. So this is the United Nations GHS system mm -hmm. that we're talking about here. So these these things were all happening in tandem where we were struggling in the EU to, to work together in an effective way. And, and the global picture was difficult. So essentially what happened was that the GHS system kind of uh, led to these directly acting regulations within the EU. So instead of you just being directed to do something, the direct, directly acting regulations actually contained all the steps and how it was done. And that was to be implemented in all member states equally. So there was this, you know, understanding that we were entering into a more global uh, system but also we were taking a subset of that global system within the EU and it would all be the same within the EU. Um, so that's a bit of a long way of going about it but you can see that there were a mixture of safety and competitiveness and environmental concerns all kind of intermingled um, in that. So in essence most of the stuff coming out of GHS is really either about uh, classification or communication and indeed that methodology and that thought process is within the EU system. So really what the EU systems are about are classifying these chemicals using known criteria and then communicating information out to the market via labels and safety data sheets and this is where you get this sort of linkage piece with EU CLP and EU REACH so there are linkages between these two regulations themselves. So between the two of them, they're really implementing the UN GHS system within the EU. So um, we have um, CLP dealing with the classification of products and then communication via the label and the P part of it being the packaging. Um, and then we have EU REACH sitting to the side of it, which goes into more detail in terms of substance classification and also talks about communication via the safety data sheet for both substances and mixtures. So they are they, they do have touch points um, in terms of both of them contain information about uh, classification and both of them have communication elements to them as well. Did those arise more or less at the same time in parallel or, or was CLP first and then REACH was developed? 
Reach was a couple of years earlier. So Reach was in okay. 2006 and CLP came out in at the end of 2008 and was implemented at the start of 2009. So, so, that, so we corrected, yeah. you know, our understanding has been that like Reach, obviously you register your chemicals and that's where all these sort of uh, safety information is sort of inputted. And then that then feeds into CLP in terms of what risks you need to be communicating down the uh, supply chain. Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, that's that is how some of it works. So in terms of the substance classification, EU Reach does um, have requirements for uh, substances to be identified, if you like. And then you're looking at a process of saying, well, if they're not supplied in the EU, um, that supplier is not supplying them within certain tonnage rates, you know, so it's one ton a year, basically. If it's below that, then you're not doing any reach registration for that in that particular year. And as you go from one ton upwards, um, incrementally, as the tonnage gets higher to 10 to 100 to 1,000 tonnes, etc., the requirements for submission of information in the dossier get more complex. So it's a sort of system that grows as the, as the, the total tonnage grows. But that doesn't mean that you're not classifying things below the one ton, if you see what I mean. So REACH has almost, if you like, if you like, CLP requires the classification of substances and of mixtures. REACH is focused in on getting um, additional information for substances that are above certain thresholds, if that okay. makes sense. So it's like an additional layer on top of it um, and is very so. much substance focused in terms of in terms of the REACH registration activity, it's substance focused. But the other key activity coming out of REACH is the provision of the safety data sheet, which is substances and mixtures. OK, uh, thank you. So just CLP itself, like, you know, if I'm a new player in the game, let's say, you know, I'm a new manufacturer and I, I realize that CLP is going to affect me. How do I know, you know, what substances of mine need to be um, uh, need to be communicated as potential hazards to actors down the line. Um, I mean, is there just, do you go to existing sort of uh, lists or are you just looking at, uh, you know, the science around certain substances and making your own call or how do you know exactly what needs to be communicated through CLP? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, um, the in terms of CLP, there's a couple of things. Probably before you get to that process, you need to think about the scoping. And again, that's something that, that um, you know, is important, for example, like for your cosmetics or pharmaceutical um, providers. So there are sort of scoping things that we can we can talk about and I think we probably should talk about. But in terms of just the pure substances themselves, and we're, we're thinking about chemical substances, it's a sort of layered approach. So at the top level, in terms of substances, we have what's known as harmonized classifications, and they are um, available on what's known as the ECHA inventory um, portal online. And the harmonized classifications are a sort of set minimum classification for that particular substance. So that gives you a minimum that you, you that you have to do. You can't do less, but you can choose to do more. So the harmonized ones are sort of a fixed position. And then below that, there is a requirement to um, notify um, chemical substance classifications to the inventory. And it's a, a sort of notification process, which is to be considered separately than the poison centre notification, not to be confused with that. It's a bit unfortunate that the terminology sounds the same. So in terms of substances, there are lists available at the EU level, the harmonised classification being more fixed and the, the notified ones having a little bit more room to manoeuvre in terms of, of what you might think that classification is and that's got to be based on on um, something scientific you know it's got to be based on some sort of information obviously otherwise everyone would just say well our substance is not classified and um, so there's obviously more to it than that but you know there is some wiggle room but it's still within some scientific parameters and you know these classifications are based on criteria set within the CLP regulations so you would be applying these criteria it might be as simple as a flashpoint for example and um, it might be um, a more convoluted um, process to get there with multiple layers of testing or it could be sitting somewhere uh, more from human experience for example so there are a range of criteria that can be applied to to reach this um, understanding of what your substance classification um, is. I think it's, sorry, Karim. Uh, no, I was just to, to give some sort of the understanding of sort of the Definitely. scope of hazards that sort of have to be communicated. I mean, sure. you know, we, we, I guess, 
our focus. And I'm going to ask you to talk about, you know, how CLP and REACH then interact with the cosmetic products regulations yes. to, to whatever extent you can speak to that. But, okay. you know, I think, you know, we're sort of, we look at like the CMR classifications because mm -hmm. we, we, we know that that then resonates yes. on the cosmetic side. But, yes. but how many sorts of, I mean, is there, a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm looking for a number here, but I mean, how many <laughs> areas of hazard are there really out there? I mean, are we talking safety, human safety and environmental that all sort of has to be communicated or is it, uh, how do you sort of put a, put this in perspective in terms of the amount of information around hazard that this yeah. covers? I mean, there are lots of different hazards um, within the system and they're they're broadly split into three areas. So the first of those is physical, um, where that hazard is often fire related. So you would think of things that are flammable or, the, or explosive or organic peroxides, things like that. They might be physically volatile um, and also things that corrode metal, for example. So it's kind of a fairly destructive um, type class of so those physical hazards. Um, the health hazards are kind of more obvious ones where you might be talking about things like CMRs, although although that that um, that phrase CMRs isn't used within uh, CLP. Most of us do understand that that the background of where that came from, the carcinogens, mutagens and reprotoxics. So they are uh, classes within CLP, but also things that are, for example, corrosive to skin irritating to eyes, irritating to skin, things that cause asthmatic um, events, things that can cause dermatitis, um, and also some more complex reactions. So things, for example, where you might, um, methanol being a good example, where you might drink it and have uh, blindness as a result of that. So something sublethal, but clearly devastating to the individual um, concerned. So there's a quite a, an extensive list of, of health hazards. And in the environmental category, we tend to have had this standard idea of aquatic uh, toxicity and persistence. And obviously some of the stuff we're going to speak about today um, extends that area. Um, we also have um, ozone layer problems tucked in there as well, which, you know, from some from a historical compliance perspective are very interesting. And a lot of what's happened with the um, classification of ozone layer uh, problems is being mirrored in what's happening at the moment. So uh, we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, might come back to that um, sort of more technical point. But yeah, there are a variety of hazards that need to be communicated. Um, okay. And it's really about assessing your substance in terms of what hazards it might present. But most people within the chemical industry are further downstream from being a substance manufacturer. So they are more likely to be blending products. So at that point, you're looking at, well, what are my what's my formulation of my mixture? What substances are in there? What are the classifications of the substances? And then it's really mostly algorithmic. So it's it's, you know, how much percent of this do I have? What does that trigger in the mixture, for example? So it's a mathematical process in the main at that point. And then when you're coming to the communication piece, you're communicating relevant information about your product on the label and also on the safety data sheet. Um, I think in your first question, we didn't really um, get back to, you know, who is who are the regulations aimed at and in terms of the EU there is a difference between the EU and US in terms of the EU is really focused on it being for the user of the product and that user could be a consumer or someone in a workplace um, and the responsibilities to um, classify your chemical and to determine what needs to be communicated um, are really all sitting with the supplier so it's the person that's placing the product on the market that actually has the responsibility. So the responsibilities for these and, and who they're aimed at are different than the US. Okay, that's uh, a good detail to uh, to clarify there. I I'm wondering as you, I, I can't help myself, this is bringing, my, <laughs> bringing up all these questions as you speak, but to what extent does risk enter into considerations around CLP? So in other words, yeah. you're, you're communicating hazards, but yeah. like you say, like you, you might have, uh, you know, individual substances that then get mixed together. And in doing that, maybe there are new properties introduced, but, or maybe it even does something to, to mitigate risks that they individually would represent. I mean, are those kinds of considerations and, and likelihood of exposure in the work process in a work setting is that coming into it at all or are you just kind of looking at it and saying you know what there are noted hazards around this substance communicate them down without really getting too much into are they really going to be exposed in a meaningful way and so forth 
Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot in there. So if I don't get to to every bit that you uh, do, do prompt me again um, <laughs> if I start on this and then I don't quite uh, hit all the marks that you had for that there. But I mean, I think that the thing I always say when I'm teaching CLP is that um, it's a much more coarse tool than something like toxicology. You know, so it is very much inherent hazard based. That's your starting point is the inherent hazard. And, you know, historically, it's been quite difficult to get into risk in that sense, because you were really basing your classification and all your communications on the inherent hazards. Um, the bringing in of reach slightly before CLP was really focusing people a bit more on the end user. So who was your actual end user and really targeting more what's the end use of these products? What sort of companies are using them? What processes are they using them in? So there was an attempt in this sort of um, in terms of, of doing reach registrations and some of the communication output from that, there was this understanding that we were really looking more to to um, broaden our understanding or you know improve our communications by adding in some of these risk management areas. But I think really in terms of the true picture, I think, and again, I could be speaking out of turn and this is just out of my experience, but I think the true picture probably is something closer to you know, business users, for example, would really take the inherent hazard off the label or the data sheet and they would process their own risk assessment and just use the inherent hazard and, and deal with their own immediate risk that they see within their actual workplace environment. So I think despite the fact that REACH was intended to um, drive better risk management measures with respect to um you know, what you're communicating, that's a communication process, right? So you're determining these risk management measures and you're trying to communicate that via safety data sheet. But the risk management measures were of the substances. And so then the substance goes in a mixture. So as you start to go down these mixtures and the mixtures go into other mixtures, you know, the substance is getting diluted down. And so the, the validity and usefulness of these risk management measures becomes less useful the further down the chain you get, if that makes sense. So you know, there's only so much you can do with that. Um, in terms of this balance between inherent hazard and risk, I mean, I think, again, this is going to be quite interesting when we talk about um, these new hazards as well, because it's not it's not as linear or straightforward a process as, as you might imagine. So this is definitely, this balance between risk and hazard is, is definitely in play. Um, when you look at things like, um, classifying under CLP, you're looking at a post-reaction formula. So if when you go to do your classification, you have to you have to deal with all the reactions that may happen, for example. So, you know, if you have something in there that's a pH modifier and it's completely used up in the process of creating that product, um, then you're not considering that in terms of your classification because it's not actually there anymore. So the CLP classification should be done on any post-reaction formulation as the product is actually supplied and intended to be used. Um, so it, it should take care of some of these um, risks that might otherwise appear out of just purely running an algorithm on, on the ingredients that go in to the product rather than the final finished product. But, uh, you know, there's also kind of stuff going on in the periphery as well which is also related to some of the the green deal type things and these sustainability programs, which are these maths and these mixture assessment kind of factors. And, you know, this this they're starting to be a bit of light shone on. Well, how does it work if we mix lots of different mixtures and if they're in the environment or in this area, how does that work? How do we factor up for for things having aggregate effects? you know, on the environment or people or, you know, these these ideas are starting to sort of start to come around. Unfortunately, a lot of them are focused on, well, what if it gets made worse? And and there's actually no under sort of there's, there doesn't seem to be much light being shown on the fact that actually in some cases things get better when they get out into the environment. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the, it, it's it's quite. Um, it's quite this. I don't want to use the word alarmist. I don't know what the best word to use for this is, but there is certainly some some black pilling going on in terms of these things. So yeah, I think our readers and uh, listeners will, will understand where you're uh, coming from there. Um, 
So yeah, and it's it seems that it's only getting more complicated. It seems sure. at least to, uh, to casual, uh, you know, watchers of this space, and you can see why uh, even even businesses would certainly benefit from the help of a consultant consultancy yeah. like yours. Um, I do want to move us forward. So the sure. last piece was how these the, the COP and reach interact with the cosmetic products regulation, sure. and then if you'd like to flow into that a little bit more specifically about then how the European Green Deal and chemical strategy for sustainability, those types of things are then impacting this sort of, you know, the all of these major regulations. Yeah, okay. So um, in terms of things like cosmetics, I mean, I'm not an expert on cosmetics, um, but I do know um, generally how that framework works and we do have consultants that we work with in that and also clients where this issue comes up I mean in ten, in terms of the cosmetics scoping is everything um, in terms of cosmetics um, so I think probably what I'd like to do is really talk about um, how the regulations apply and then maybe come back and speak a bit more about the the EU cosmetics regulations there and just see if I can pull it together in, in in a sort of meaningful way. So in terms of how CLP is scoped and, and REACH has a very similar understanding of how this works, so I'm going to take it from a CLP perspective in the first instance, is that the CLP regulations are really unusual in that they are disapplied. So they're a type of regulation that's uh, subject to disapplication and what that means is it applies to everything but what's on this list. So most regulations tend to, to pick out exactly what they do apply to, whereas CLP is in the reverse. So it applies to everything but. And one of those buts is cosmetic products, but it's important to understand the terms of that. So it's cosmetic products which are in the finished state as intended for the final user. So finished state, final user. So, you know, ingredients might fall into the scope of CLP or, or would fall into the initial scope of CLP um, all the way up until, for example, the product is in, you know, if it's a mascara, it's in the tube that's, you know, with the brush, you know, and it's all ready to go on the shelf. It's as as the consumer would buy it, for example, as the final user would use it. Um, um, when I'm doing this on courses, I'll often demonstrate, for example, using a lipstick. So it's like this is in the fi finished state. It's in the packaging, in the finished state, as intended for the final user. And so um, in terms of EU CLP, cosmetics are not within scope of CLP if they're in that finished state as intended for the final user. And to give some sort of guidance as to how you might apply that and how far that goes, um, even in terms of pharmaceuticals, for example, if you have a paracetamol that go into like a blister pack, um, but they're actually supplied from the factory in some sort of bulk container of some sort, they might be in a barrel or a drum, and then they go to another factory to get put in the blister packs and into the into you know cardboard box to go on the, the shelf. At the point that these uh, pharmaceuticals are still within the drum, they're not in the finished state as intended for the final user. So although the, the product is technically a finished pharmaceutical, there is still this argument that it's not as intended for the final user. The final user doesn't buy it out of the drum like that. They buy it in a blister pack with all the instructions on it and a cardboard box. Do, do you see what I mean? So it's yeah. applying that same that same um, ideology is applied to cosmetics. So the ingredients up until the finished date as intended for the final user fall under CLP. But once they're in the in the cosmetic state there, they, the CLP regulations don't apply. Gotcha. Um, where the um, EU regulations for cosmetic products kind of not overlap, if you like, but really it's a reference point. So EU CLP is used as a reference point for other systems. So certain other regulations will say, you know, if a product is classified as X, and then in order to, to, to demonstrate what that classification means, it will say in accordance with the CLP regulations. So it's using the CLP regulations as an external reference point for um, a particular classification. And that is indeed what happens within the cosmetic products because it's using the CMRs or carcinogens, mutagens and reprotoxics. When it's talking about those, it's talking about those as classified under EU CLP. So that's where the two kind of touch each other if you like. So there is a scoping issue in terms of the finished product and there is 
the use of CLP as a reference point of the reference classification system for cosmetics, mainly in terms of the CMRs issue. Yeah, Does that so make, seen, make we, sense? Yes, absolutely. Because we've uh, certainly written on chemicals. I mean, uh, recently, titanium dioxide, for example. Yes. Um, it, it sort of you know, was <laughs> falling under the CMR umbrella. Um, yes. And, you know, what we've seen there is that the regulations then sort of require um, a favorable opinion from the Scientific Committee on Consumer Safety, among other uh, criteria that I think need to be met in order for that not to be sort of sort of banned and they, I know they've gone yeah. back to automatic ban what does that mean exactly but um but certainly yeah if they fall under that CMR uh, classification then you know they are sort of on the way to being banned unless there's a a, a decision yeah. in their favor um and yeah. so I think when we start talking about these new hazard classes that they're that they proposed um, particularly like endocrine disruptors, uh, which is, um, you know, has been sort of a controversial term for, yes, for you know, in for recent many memory. reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's where industry we're seeing is starting to get nervous about that because, sure. you know, that's not well defined. And, and if something is classified as an endocrine disruptor, you know, is that suddenly going to be because they're also revising the, the cosmetic products regulation. So, yeah. um, it's anyway, that's what we've been writing sure. on. And, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think um, everybody who works in my field who does this as a job full time. So most most people who work in regulatory, that's only a fraction of their job. But people who do this as a job are all looking about 10 years older at the moment. So, um, you know, it's um, it's quite a tricky one. If you don't mind, I'd like to just go back to a couple of things just to finish off that last point before we get into I know the subject you're really keen to talk about the, the endocrine disruptors and things but just if it's okay I'll just finish off this last piece um in terms of the scoping for reach if you look at the sort of cosmetics and reach piece again reach has got sort of two key activities I suppose and um, the first is the sort of registration and the second part of that is the provision of the safety data sheets. And again, they've got similar ideas in terms of scoping um, for the safety data sheets. So um, if you are um, if you are placing on the market um, a cosmetic mixture in the finished state intended for the final user, so you see the same words, then a safety data sheet, for example, is not required. So you can see that there's a similar scope theme running through the two of the, uh, the two of the regulations but in terms of registration um if it's not in the finished state which which it wouldn't be because most cosmetics are going to be mixtures of some sort so if you're looking at these sort of um the ingredients that go into cosmetics before they're in that finished state the ingredients also are within scope um of reach in terms of registration and I think there are some uh, restrictions on particular things, again, linking mainly to the CMR. So there is a linkage piece even within reach that's talking about the CMRs and cosmetics. So they sort of they cross link over with each other. Um, so, yes, generally speaking, your your primary focus in terms of cosmetics is the cosmetics regulation. And, and, and you know, it's only when it comes into this final definition that it falls out of CLP and reach. So I hope that kind of helps. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Um, would you um would you like me to just give you a quick uh update on titanium dioxide in the EU while you've just happened to have mentioned it there? <laughs> we love it. Yeah, please. Okay, so just gonna do this on the fly. So um there was a, a massive process in terms of titanium dioxide in the classification. And in the EU, there was an update called the 14th ATP. So the ATPs are kind of just shorthand for changes to the regulations. And the 14th ATP um, among other things, proposed some new EUH statements, uh, 211 and 212, to deal with um, mixtures with titanium dioxide in them. And then we obviously have this change in the classification, which was making things really difficult in terms of cosmetics um, and some other areas, pharmaceuticals. Um, I mean, we have some clients who work in um, mainly in vaping, but they also have a tobacco background. So even the white tips on cigarettes were, you know, impacted um, by this titanium dioxide um, piece. Mm -hmm. So we had this sort of change coming out of the 14th ATP, but um, it was taken to a Supreme Court action uh, recently and the action was won. So it's the first time that 
what we would know as a harmonized classification. So if you remember back to the start of our conversation, I was talking about these kind of fixed classifications um, that are, you know, pretty much you're stuck with them. You can't really do anything. That's your minimum. Um, that was taken um, to court action and it was won. So the, the European court has actually overturned the classification of titanium dioxide. So um, this wow. is a massive, uh, massive piece of interest, I think, um, yeah, in yeah, terms of what very, you're doing. Yeah, so that's the, is that the Court of Justice then? Will be in the yeah. EU? Okay. Um, yeah, no, that's fascinating. We'd like to take a closer look at that. When did that happen? Yeah. When was that decision? This is very recent. It's only been a, um, a couple of, probably a couple of days um, we're talking about. So it was the 23rd of November that happened. So, you know, it was very recent. It's it's kind of hot off the press. Um, and, and what's quite interesting about this is, A, it's never happened before. I mean, we do still have space. There's still a couple of months for the um, European Commission to appeal against this. But what's really interesting about this, I mean, number one, your your customers are, are sort of your subscribers are going to be, um, you know, users of titanium dioxide. So this is this is going to be important for them as to whether this changes in the EU. But what's also really interesting is the methodology of 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 the decision. So when the judgment came back, the the problem that was thrown up in terms of um, the classification was that it wasn't solely an inherent hazard. So this is kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about risk management and, and how much of it is inherent hazard based. And really, the CLP system is designed to be inherently hazard based in that sense. It's about the inherent hazards. And what's really fascinating is that um, the judgment is is showing here that there is an issue here with not um, solely dealing with the intrinsic properties. And this is something that is really the the fundamental problem with things like endocrine disruptors, right? Because there is a, a science issue, if you like, in terms of whether that is an inherent hazard. You know, the, the problem with these endocrine disruptors in terms of the, you know, I hate using this phrase, the science, but, you know, in terms of the scientific position, um, endocrine disruption is a mode of action. It's not an inherent property in something. Right. So, you know, this, this titanium dioxide piece has got multiple application issues here. This is a really interesting really interesting development yeah no i would think that that would then open the door for you know future challenges around some of these uh classifications yeah. and um yeah and uh yeah so i mean titanium dioxide what, what was the it, so the problem there was just it's not inherently dangerous but you know it can be hazardous just in certain formats and certain exposure or, or what yeah, was this it, it's the sort of state and the size of the particles and the quantity. You know, when you start to get into quantity there, you're talking about risk and not hazard. Yeah. You know, yeah. and the size of the particles and whether it's an, you know, with certain aggregate states. And, you know, also um, part of the issue, I think, was that there was an individual piece to this as well. So it was about the 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 human in question as to whether, you know, what their status of, of their even their own lungs were you know so the you know that's not how intrinsic properties and, and inherent hazards work right that's starting to really right. muddy the waters um so, so is this specific yeah. to the inhalation hazard uh piece like certain particles unbound particles of a certain size was it that because i thought i'd also seen yeah. like you know some consumption like oral consumption issues of of titanium dioxide and some other angles that they were sort of targeting yeah sources. my understanding was that the main key piece here is around the lung overload but yeah, again you know when you've got particles and stuff like that flying about whether you've swallowed it you inhaled it sometimes is a matter of you know and sort of right, yeah. it, it's not always you know depending again on particle size it's not always as straightforward as what the what the route of entry even was there so yeah there's a lot going on and and again I'm happy to sort of provide some links for this stuff as I'm reading for you guys to do because the judgment is actually available to read and and I think it I think it's really important for for pharmaceutical and, and for cosmetic yeah no absolutely no and I think you know even though that that feels perhaps it's something like a digression there, a departure from what we were talking about. I mean, I think the larger issues here, I mean, really, if you stand back and look at the big picture in the EU, is a lot of concern about, yeah, the hazard versus risk. And um, you would think that that would be, you know, very much a, a, an endorsement of a risk-based approach in some ways. Um, 
Uh, and of course, you know, the regulations are functioning differently and they may focus simply on hazard versus risk. But um, but yeah, that that's uh, that should be a pretty good sign to industry. Um, and if we can return to then, you know, the end of yeah. construction. Um, yes, let's do so that. Let's let's go back to because this gets into, as you were saying, that's one of the concerns has been raised about endocrine disruptors is, you know, just because something is is having an effect on the endocrine system doesn't necessarily mean that there's a linkage to adverse um you know, uh, effects in humans and so forth. Um, can we just start with, okay, the status of the proposal? I called it a draft regulation to yeah. begin with, but I think it's actually a delegated act or something like that. I'm not sure exactly the differences there, but what exactly is the status of this proposal? It also would yeah. affect um, PBT and very PVB. Oh, I know. Honestly, all the acronyms. <laughs> I have to stop and think sometimes. I'm like, is that a V in front of that one? Is that? Yeah, it's um, it's tricky, isn't it? So but, um, but the status of it, sort of when, uh, where it is in the process yeah. and the implications for companies using these chemicals. Sure. Please. Yeah. So um, where we got to in terms of the status is that there was a yet another consultation done in um, October and there have actually been two revisions since October um, so um, the current drafts and again I can provide them for you if you would like them are dated the 17th and 18th of November so it's very recent again um, the there was an ad hoc meeting of the uh, what they know as Caracal but essentially it's kind of a commission board um, they met on an ad hoc basis, so it was off their usual timetable on the 29th of November. So that's very recent. And they were reviewing or discussing the very final draft. So although they say draft on them, they also say final draft on them. So mm -hmm. and even to get to that draft, they didn't want any comments. They explicitly asked for no comments um, <laughs> on the previous draft. So, you know, you could see where the wind was blowing here. And, and there's a bit more to, to be said about that, perhaps. Um, but where we are is that I understand that the draft as it stands um, is going to go out for checking sometime around the 19th of this month. And I believe that the process for it to be checked um, would be something like two months. So I think we're, we're it's, this is very quick. We're looking end of the year for very swift implementation. So I think we're talking weeks here. Um, and wow. All right. yeah, and I did. A, I'm, I'm also the vice chair of the Chemical Hazards Communication Society, which is a, a sister organization to the SCHC in the States. So we kind of we swap resources and information and, and speakers and things like that. So we kind of work together on, on our programs, um, very similar um, very similar things that we're looking to achieve. I actually responded to the last consultation in October on behalf of the CHCS and its membership. Um, so I do have that document that I can supply to you, but I've also kind of taken stock of where we are based on the last consultation. So I can kind of really maybe take you through some of the, the things that have happened even since the last consultation in October and just give you an idea of where things have gotten to, if that would help. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, in terms of, let, while we're on the deadlines, let's just carry on um, with that. So uh, it's going to be a very quick turnaround, it's weeks. Um, there will be a phase-in date, but these dates for phasing in, in of things um, come from the date of entry, so when the regulation sort of comes into into being. Um, so it should go through some of these these regulatory processes noting it'll be sitting on people's desks so it'll be time some of that two-month period will just literally be Christmas time um, so probably no one will look at it until January by which time three weeks will have passed by of the two months so there you know the timing there is is yeah <laughs> so um, so it, it's going to be a very quick process Okay. Um, the date of entry that you have then starts the clock ticking in terms of the activities. So essentially what's happened is that we have a phase in for substances placed on the market after the date of entry. Um, and then we have a sort of slightly longer deadline for those that are already existing on the market. And that's the same for substances and mixtures. So there has been an increase of six months on the substances. So basically you have 24 months to deal with what you would know as new substances to the market, 42 months for those already on the EU market, so 24 and 42 months. And in terms of mixtures, a new mixture on the market would have 36 months to comply with this change 
and an existing mixture, i.e. one already on the market, when the regulation comes into to being, we'd have 60 months. So you can see that there's some deadlines that sound like they're far away, right, but, sure, but, yeah. but they're not really. Um, would you like me to talk a little bit about kind of the, the implications that, that might be in play there and the sorts of kind of key issues that people might be wanting to keep an eye out for? Yeah, absolutely, because it sounds like sure. it's not a matter of if this thing goes through, it's it's just it's going to happen. And now, yeah, how, how do companies sort of brace well, for it? How should they be preparing? You know, we haven't really gone into this and and this part of it, but, you know, the, the green deals and the chemical strategy for sustainability are really expediting some of these things and, um, you know, beyond the timetable and actually, you know, even beyond process. And in terms of going back to titanium dioxide example, you know, there could be a case raised and several member state countries have raised this this issue where this updating of the regulations in this manner is actually not consistent with the process or how the regulations are supposed to be updated. So there's even a process quibble. It's being rushed through under a delegated regulation type process when it should really be going out to be looked at properly. You know, there's been a lot of rushing. I understand that it is now going to go through some sort of process, but this, this, um, you know, they, they've been defending the use of this fast track process, but it is it is most definitely coming out of this, of what's underpinning the green deals and the, mm -hmm, the sustainability. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, the, the, there is no, they're quite clear when you have a look within the draft regulations themselves, they're quite clear within the regulations that they've done multiple consultations on this and not everyone is on board. Um, you know, many different uh, member states had problems with this. Lots of companies had problems with this. The some of the regulators were a bit sort of, hmm, how's that going to work? Um, it, it, this is, you know, it's quite clear that they're not taking on board anything other than the most practical things that are coming out of the consultation. So it's happening. It is happening. The consultations are, in, in a sense, almost meaningless. All they're using the consultations for is to correct any practical issues that might throw up immediate problems they're not really addressing the fundamental issues of um you know i think even just to dive into it i mean when you're looking at classifying a substance for example again a good example is something like a flammable so a flammable liquid you would do a flashpoint and you've got a range of criteria so if the flashpoint is between x and y the pro the product is flammable category whatever and then you apply your H statement to it right so you've got this discernible test you've got criteria where you get a value of some sort out of that test regime and you plug that value into the criteria to see where it fits and it's either not classified or it's classified a certain way depending on where it falls in a range of of trigger limits right um, but when you're looking at some of these um, hazard classes there's not necessarily a discernible one standard test and one set of you know criteria to match it against you know you may need a yeah. suite of different tests <laughs> in order to prove or disprove something here now when you get into suites of tests there's a whole variety of things like time and money practical considerations that come up but you know it's not even clear whether the testing houses can actually do any of the tests needed or all of the tests needed in order to prove these criteria. So, you know, there are some fundamental problems, I think, in terms of of the tests actually, these these getting a, a package of tests together that, that determine what it is that you want them to determine. And even if there was, everybody's going to want it at once. You know, so, so you know, so the it, it's there are a practical set of issues there and when you when you have complex tests like that and you have layering of different test results and you're having to really look at all of this raw data and the test methodology and try and work out what it's telling you about that product you know this is not looking up a flashpoint on a table you can teach people to do that very very easily but you're talking here about having experts who are able to apply expert judgment and weight of evidence approaches to new test regimes and new classes. And again, these people are going to be busy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there are some practical bottlenecks that 
that are really concerning. I mean, it's not clear to me in some cases whether you'll need to update REACH registration dossiers with this sort of information. I presume you will have to. Um, one of the, you know, one of the one of the things that's being caused by a variety of ways they're going about things here is that these hazard classes will be assigned something known as an EUH statement. And in the EU, EUH statements are supplemental information that are applied. They're a labelling statement. They're not classification. They might be classification based and they might be used with sort of criteria to apply them. But the EUH statements are there as a label element to communicate information to the user of the product. But they're generally subclassification. But what they've done in this instance is because really the process for implementing UH statements is to go via the UNGHS process, it gets updated there, it cascades down then into um, EUCLP. Because they're not doing that, they can't actually really issue an H statement. So what they've done is they've assigned EUH statements to hazard classes. So they've used this mix and match approach. Um, without realigning the rest of the regulations against it. Because as the regulations are written, EUH statements are a label element, but they're now using EUH statements to represent a hazard class. Now, hazard class is usually represented by hazard statement. And there are loads of uh, places throughout the regulations that say, you know, if the hazard is X, then do Y. And we're now having to look at these EUH statements and say, well, how, how do they sit with that? because they're they're actually there to represent a class. So, you know, that was one of the things that we put back as part of our consultation response, this practical problem of how EUH statements were to be viewed in terms of the rest of the regulations. And the response was that they were that the EUH statements are to be treated in all instances as a hazard statement um, throughout the rest of the regulations. So we have this mixing and matching of the system uh, elements for this first time yeah. and it and it's going to mean things like you know an EUH statement before would be something you would just put on a label but now these these particular EUH statements can trigger other requirements so they can trigger things like poison center notifications for example they can trigger other scoping requirements because they're going to be treated as a full class so it's very confusing for people who who don't know how to make that distinction. You know, we're going to have to train people to understand that in these particular cases of these eight EUH statements, they are to be treated in all respects like a hazard statement. So yeah, I think that, it, uh, yeah. It sounds like, well, I mean, to the uh, more of a lay person here, I mean, it's it's it just, it sounds like quite a mess, actually. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, I think uh, it is. I mean, we've, and, and it, <laughs> it does trace back to what, was, you know, it seems to trace back to what you're saying. And it's just, there's just this rush job under the Green Deal and all of its various parts. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, what you had initially, I mean, it, is the, it just raises the question of if the EU is moving in a very, uh, in a direction that is very contrary to some of those um, sort of ideals that you spoke to in the beginning when we first started talking about, you know, taking into consideration um, competitiveness um, and uh, on a global scale and and, um, you know, if uh, who this is really in the interest of and that kind of thing. Um, and it sounds like this is definitely an area that's going to be rife with, I would think, some more legal challenges that, you, you know, could be seeing in terms of how it's implemented or maybe just the, the underlying basis of some of these things. Um, yeah, I, don't know I what, would what, hope what, so. Yeah. I think I think the industry needs to start pushing back on some of this stuff, you know, um it, you know, the competitiveness piece i mean if you look at mark carney for example he was uh the old head of the the sort of uh bank of england i think he was and he's now involved in a lot of these um global level green programs you know and he's saying well any business that doesn't do all of these things is going to be out of business you know there is this drive in terms of this competitiveness so you've hit something there you know in you know what is the interest that's being served with some of this i mean yeah yeah the, the chemical industry is a highly regulated area it's a highly responsible area you know and what happens when you when you have changes like this is you know it's not just the obvious stuff where you have to update you know registration dossiers reclassify things relabel things redo your data sheets it's not just these sorts of knock-on activity impacts 
I mean, you, you have these other things that happen. So you have like a de facto or actual blacklisting. So you, you may find that someone will then choose to say, well, if you've got product with EUH statement, whatever on it, we won't take that product anymore or we won't take anything with that that classification so you can find that you you have you know de facto blacklisting um, and it can move to actual it can end up then being used to apply a restriction I mean the way to apply restrictions is through reach that's what reach is for um, to restrict things so this seems like an almost backdoor way of of creating ways to restrict products and again cosmetics you know fall into having restrictions applied to them mainly around the CMRs for example but you know I mean, I've been working in this area for about 25 years now. And one of the things that I notice is every time there's a big regulatory change, we have an extinction event of suppliers. You know, in a lot of SMEs are involved in in um, in speciality chemicals. You know, that's that's the, the purview of this, the small and medium enterprise. So, you know, quite often these are smaller companies that are run by families. Um, and you do find that consultants and small companies just drop out of the system when you have these major changes because they have to say well I'm planning on retiring in five years how much is it going to cost me to do this how much headspace will I need to make for it you know what will be the overall cost benefit analysis of this and they just retire early Um, so you can get these supplier shortages that are created from from blacklisting and from and these extinction events in terms of the chemical industry. No, I think there's a lot of very uh, you know, very reasonable concerns about this. Um, we've seen, you know, the major trade groups are definitely um, expressing concerns about non-uniformity with the the UN um, system that you, you spoke yes. about about um, you know all of these things that you've talked about. I mean, just just the Green Deal in general and that the chemicals strategy for sustainability, that whole generic. Um, what is it called? Generic assessment of, of risk, mm-hmm. which is really kind of a misnomer because it doesn't seem to be risk based at all. It's just sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, they talk about taking out the most harmful or something like that chemicals. Not really clear on what that means, but it does seem yeah. to be linked to things like endocrine disruptors. So sure. there's just we've seen these estimates that are just staggering in terms of like the amount of registered chemicals within reach that they think could be affected by some of these principles that are being yeah. put forward. Um, where it's, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like, it's thousands and thousands and thousands and huge percentages of overall chemical use that will be affected by these things. Nobody's quite sure how it's going to shake out. Um, And uh, yeah, it is just a a lot of uncertainty. And, and, uh, you know, you would hope that that everything kind of just comes together. But um, (laughs) (laughs) well, it's pretty chaotic at the moment. I mean, if I, if I might, um, you know, I was at a meeting, um, sort of quite recently of kind of chemical consultants and somebody had kind of put out the figure in a presentation something along the lines of you know 86 percent of the public in the eu wanted more safe chemicals they wanted environmentally more safe chemicals you think okay that's great but what percentage of those were willing to change anything in terms of their behavior and their spending you know were they willing to lose out on something are you willing to only you know wash your clothes every fourth time you've worn them as opposed to maybe the two that you're doing now are you what are you willing to do differently are you genuinely willing to to spend 10 times more on a product and exactly we we just wrote on that in the context of the microplastic um a band that's basically you know uh approaching uh completion it looks like um and and that it's just you see what happens here. I mean, you see, for example, the NGOs run, you know, will have a petition and, you know, they'll get thousands of signatures because, of course, people don't like the idea of yeah. microplastic in the environment. Nobody likes that. They're going to sign on. But then they go to legislators and, and policymakers and say, see, there's all the support. But, yeah, like you're saying, I don't know that people know what they're really signing on. It's a on linear for. question. Well, if anybody asked you in the street, would you prefer having more environmentally safe chemicals? And not? yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. Who? I can't believe it was only 86, you know, but. Um, right. But they're not it, being really solutions. They're trade-offs. It's, right? it's and there disingenuous. Is, yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, there isn't a cupboard of new chemicals just sitting. We're not just waiting for this opportunity to break out this this batch of amazing high functioning new chemicals that are unclassified, but they meet all the regulatory requirements and they're good to go. You know, th- th- there's not this there's not this battery of new stuff just waiting for the the right moment for us to go surprised by the way we've had these all these years. They work really great and and they, they don't hurt anyone or anything. I mean, the worse your problem is in terms of 
you know, generally speaking, the worse the problem is you're trying to solve with a chemical, the worse the chemical is. But nasty chemicals sometimes work really nicely with a tiny little bit of them. Yeah. You know, and, you know, the less you use of something, if you're talking about really talking about environmental change, the less of the product, the less you're making, the less all that costs, the less transport, the less logistics, you know, you know, whereas you might be using a lot more of something that's that's not as effective. You know, it can be better the devil, you know, with some of these things. So there, there's a lot to talk about in here. This is really disingenuous just to stop people in the street and ask them if they'd rather have more environmentally safe chemicals from an industry, particularly in the EU, that has worked its socks off since 2006. You know, since Reach came out, it's been constant change, preparing dossiers, gathering information. It's been a lot of money in terms of spends. You know, and they get through from 2006 to 2022 and then just get hit with this. You know, it's yeah. it's a lot for an industry to take in, one that's already pretty responsible. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, Louise, this is probably a pretty good place to stop, but we sure. can keep going on. And and I know that uh, and <laughs> we'd be very interested in bringing you back to talk about how this sure. sort of unfolds. Um, but I think that that's probably... Um, a yeah. good place to land, but I will give you a chance. You know, what sort of crucial have we left out here? Any any final sort of advice for uh, companies uh, as this uh, as this goes forward? Yeah, one thing I would like to say is that in between the consultation in October, I did say there were two draft updates, and a really critical one that came in was that they added back in the non-animal test data. So okay. I think that that is a really important point to note. Yes, that yes. that they've added criteria for that through all of the different um classes is really really important point um yeah, so is, i would because that, that was definitely a concern that was raised that hey you know we're, we're yeah, going back in time eliminate. you know exactly exactly um it's it's yeah it's horrific really you know, nobody wants to see that it's just awful so that was something that i kind of wanted to make sure that that i got into the conversation um i think um yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, how, how could they best prepare? Oh, well, do you know, someone really wise years ago, I didn't think he was wise at the time, um, did say that, you know, he sometimes it's best to hang back a little bit and see how some of these things unfold. And I and I think that there is a little bit of sense in, in just taking a minute, taking a breath in, not being bounced into taking action, and, you know, take some time to see what the lay of the land is, wait till the regulations actually come out and they're finished. Um, you know what you're working with at that stage. Um, I mean, again, it depends on on whether people are in in groups and they want to actually start lobbying and pushing back on some of this stuff because I do think it's going to be relentless over the the coming years if people don't start saying actually, you know, we don't think this is manageable. We also don't think the science is that good. Um, you know, we do have some concerns there. So I think people should be considering not just jumping straight to compliance, but taking a deep breath seeing what it looks like, seeing what can be done. You know, this this European Court of Justice thing on titanium dioxide shows you that there's there's room for things to be done. It's not a complete lost cause. There are things nobody's trying to pollute the environment. We're just trying to make sure that the, the industry keeps moving. The general public don't know how many chemicals get used in the day to day making of their lives. They don't have a clue. Right. Um, and I think you know, it's a bit it's a bit focused that way at the moment. So, yeah, I think deep breath, see what what lobbying you want to do, having a look at what the compliance is, you know, really going to cost, getting a plan. Um, I often think it's really important to just sit down and get a plan worked out and just, you know, cost that out before you do anything, time and cost it out and see what can be done and um, what changes need to be made. It's a lot in the planning, I think, but it is a really tough one. Like, I, I'm I mean, we're just sitting looking at some of our client stuff just now. And, and in some ways, we in some ways we don't know where to start because we don't know what we don't know. Because there are very few real lists on things like endocrine disruptors. You know, there there are there are lists available, but there's no real one list that seems to be the the leading list at the moment. We've been following a few different lists to see how that goes. But, you know, at this moment in time, it's it's unknown for some some of these products. So it's it's not part of the problem here is going to be people who are out who currently are out of scope of CLP who will be brought into scope with CLP by this so it's not so much a problem of 
the people who are currently under CLP adding something else to their thought process. There are companies out there who, who are out of scope of CLP at the moment just by nature of the hazards of their products who, who could be brought in by this. So there could be a whole raft of people out there currently unaware of CLP because they fall out of scope. So they're not even aware that this change is coming. So that's um, that's a problematic area, I think. But yeah, I'd hope not to be all doom and gloom about this. I think, it, I, I, you know, it is difficult. I'm not gonna, not going to sugarcoat it. But I think, you know, things can only, when everybody's got a problem, everyone's got a problem, right? So every single new regulation, more or less, that's come out in the EU in the last few years has ended up being stalled in some way or another. You know, Brexit was late. Um, the poison centre notification dates got put back. The poison centre notification um, regulations had to end up being reissued. Um, actually, I think the whole, if I remember rightly now, the whole annex was reissued in its entirety because it wasn't workable as it was, along with another two regulations that came out. So, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's not always as on the nose as everyone thinks. They rush these things out and then people are like, well, we can't do that, though. And quite often it's the it's it's um, the regulators or the central bodies themselves that can't manage because they don't have the capacity to do everything in that time frame either. They want you to change something and submit a new dossier. Someone's got to take that dossier in and actually process it. And so yeah. they're struggling as well. Sometimes the pushback comes from, um, you know, the recipient of whatever the output of the regulation is. So, you know, there can be problems across the board. There can be pushback from all sorts of areas. So I think it's important to have your... You know, if you've got concerns about it and you don't like it, speak. You know, I think it's really important yep. that people speak. Um, I think, you know, without getting myself into a kind of contentious area at the very end of an interview, you know, <laughs> the, the Green New Deal is is, is um, an opinion, like all things. Um, these It's based on information that's submitted to it. Some of it isn't agreed by everyone. It's not. Um, a done deal in terms of how people look at things despite the use of this phrase the science the last couple of years science is an ongoing endeavor it's not an end point there's always things moving there's no such thing as a settled science um, and I think that it is important if you don't agree with some of these things or you think that there's some room for debate in here to step into that space and start talking I think a lot of people get shouted down by you know oh you're a uh, environmental denier or whatever um you know and, and this phrase is designed to close debate but we're scientists we should be having a healthy conversation about these and arguing about these points in a civil way um and so people need to not be cowed into thinking oh well if I say anything I'm going to look like um you know I don't care about you know fish and things like that it's not what people are saying we need to be able to have a sensible scientific conversation about what's actually happening because this assumption is underpinning the pace of these um, processes and you know it's going to keep coming and keep coming if people aren't willing to stand up and go I don't agree I don't agree I think we need to talk about it some more we need to have a look at some more uh, evidence and decide what we want to do from there yeah no absolutely we're hearing that from uh, a, you know a number of industry stakeholders and hopefully there will be um uh, more of that three-dimensional sort of conversation around some of these things going forward. Um, so people, uh, yeah, speak up and and go to chemical legislation professionals. Maybe they can help you out. Uh, yep. Louise, thank you very much for coming on. I'm sure this will be an ongoing conversation, and we'd love to have you back. But this that was really great. enlightening today, and I uh, really appreciate it. So thank you very much. No, thank you. And this has been uh, HBW Insights Over the Counter podcast, and that is it for today's episode. Happy holidays, everybody. We will catch you next time. Thank you.